0: The centerpiece of Christianity is Jesus Christ. Christians are so called and were so called because of our allegiance to our Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, our prophet, our priest, and our king, that we profess and confess is an uh, an actual historical figure known as Jesus of Nazareth. Distinct to Christianity is our white-knuckled, unwavering, unrelenting, non-negotiable commitment to this Jesus who we believe is actually God, the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity wrapped in human flesh. He was sent by God the Father to live in the place of sinners, then to die in the place of sinners, making an actual atonement for sins, reconciling us to His Father, and then three days later He came back from the dead. When a Christian says, when we say, the Lord builds up Zion, He appears in His glory, we're talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a very particular figure in mind. That same Christ that rose from the dead ascended into the heavens, we confess, with the clouds into the heavens visibly and then disappearing out of sight where right now He is enthroned in the heavens ruling over all things so that He is the King ruling over all kings of the earth. He's the Lord ruling over all human lords. When we say, or when the Christian says, the Lord God omnipotent reigns, we're talking about one that history knows as a Jewish carpenter named Jesus. Someday that same Christ will come in flaming glory, at the spear's head of an army of angelic warriors and trample all of His enemies and ours because they are one and the same. And He's going to take us to be with Him forever. So that when a Christian says, and so we will always be with the Lord, again, we're referring to the man Christ Jesus because we know that there's only one God and there's only one mediator between God and men and that is the man Christ Jesus. It's this person and His accomplished work which I trust has drawn all of us together here today. That's why we're here. We didn't pick the first day of the week. It was delivered to us and marked out on our calendars a long, long time ago to be the day when the saints would gather for worship because this is the day that Christ completed His redemptive work. It's His person and work that's going to hold us together with Himself for all of eternity. We will not get to heaven and lay off our need of the mediatorial and saving and sustaining work of this Christ. He will forever be the life of His people. And it is this person and and His work that forms the substance of our unity as a church body through His indwelling Holy Spirit. The centerpiece of Christianity is Jesus Christ Now, we've spent several months talking about unity in the church body from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10. Hopefully you understand that that discussion and the consideration of church unity is in no way in contrast to or or in contradiction to all that I just said about Christ Jesus Himself being the very centerpiece of our faith because... Hopefully, we've seen obtaining and maintaining unity really all boils down to believing and living in light of that great centerpiece of our faith, the Lord Jesus. It's because of Him. It's because of what He's done. It's because of what He's done in us. It's because of His life being formed in us. His grace, His Spirit, His benefits being worked out in our lives. That's what propels the Christian and the church to unity. That's what forms our unity. So we haven't, we haven't left that theme, although we have, we have focused on, on the topic of unity for a while. Now, as we move forward, I want to remind you that this is actually exactly Paul's method of, of addressing particular issues. We'll, we'll see statements and, and people will point out statements like, you know, Christ, Paul will say, well, we determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Well, then we read his epistles and we say, well, He talked about all sorts of things. That those are not opposing statements. Everything that he says is rooted in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul's answer throughout this epistle is to turn the eyes of the Corinthians away from themselves and to the crucified and risen Savior. We've said this from the beginning. The whole letter of 1 Corinthians, we could say, is really an epistle of the cross. An epistle of the cross... And until we really, truly, honestly observe and and conceive and are convinced of, by faith, what happened at the cross, then unity in particular, sanctification in general, is going to be stunted. It's going to be hindered. It's going to be slowed down. It's sped up. It's it's force-fed. It's given jet fuel, not when we focus strictly on the specifics of our sanctification. We need to do that. But the fuel of it is when we give ourselves to focus on the centerpiece, which is Jesus Christ and Him crucified, His person and His work. That's what He's going to do. Now, we're going to pick up our study in verses 11 to 17. I want you to see in this section three things. We're going to note the occasion for Paul's appeal to unity. That'll sort of connect everything that we've seen to where we're going. The occasion for Paul's appeal to unity. Then secondly, the arbitrary nature of this occasion. And then thirdly, Paul's ministry as the opposite of arbitrary. I've tried to make the point sort of connected with with various words. The occasion for Paul's appeal to unity, the arbitrary nature of this occasion, and then Paul's ministry as the opposite of arbitrary. And I want to say from the outset, what's, what, what's being said here in verses 11 to 17, I take... Uh, almost as just sort of preparatory and introductory Paul's way of addressing the issue so that he can get back to the meat of the way he wants to deal with the saints in Corinth. Everything that he's going to say here that we're going to see, it's opened up further in the following chapters, chapter chapters 2, 3, and 4. He doesn't complete the subject of unity till chapter 4, what he's addressing here. So the goal for this morning is I want you to understand the quarrel in Corinth as a means to wrap our minds around Paul's remedy moving forward. Uh, the quarrel in Corinth, it, it does provide us with an occasion to study and to learn and, and there, there are many things that we could learn from the quarrel. In the epistle, the quarrel is not the point. In the epistle, the, the, the quarrel is the occasion for Paul to bring us the point that he wants us to see. And so, Point number one is the occasion for Paul's appeal to unity in verses 11 and 12. The occasion for Paul's appeal to unity. The occasion for Paul's appeal to unity is a report that had reached him to the effect that disputing had arisen over personal attachments to certain teachers or certain preachers. We read in verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. The word reported means to make known with sufficient evidence, to make clear or beyond doubt or to indicate beyond a doubt. In other words, Paul had received something more than just hearsay. Whatever he received in this report was enough to convince him that there was a legitimate problem at the church in Corinth. Now we see that the origin of this report is from Chloe's people. It has been reported to me by Chloe's people, or literally those of Chloe. We have no more information on on who these people are, Who Chloe was? Some people suggest Chloe wasn't a person. Chloe was a place. We don't know. All we have is that this report came from those of Chloe and apparently these people had enough clout with Paul that whatever they gave him by way of report was enough to prove there was a legitimate issue, enough for him to take pen in hand or or to get Sosthenes to take pen in hand and to dictate an epistle. A report has come. From Chloe's people, and we see the substance of this report is that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. This word quarreling could be translated strife. It means bitter conflicts or heated dissension. We get an idea of the type of thing that typically accompanies this, this quarreling In 2 Corinthians, chapter 12, Paul groups together quarreling with jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. And I think we understand, as we open up what the issue is, we'll see how all of these things typically come together. Where there's quarreling, there's usually going to be jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. The sin that's called quarreling here is found often in lists of sins, like Romans 13, 13, sexual immorality, sensuality, quarreling, and jealousy. Right there in, in that list. Of the fruits of the flesh in Galatians five twenty, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, same word, quarreling, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. When Paul describes the people who have a debased mind in Romans chapter 1, We think these are the worst of the worst, right? This is where we go to to illustrate total depravity and the the rebellion of man. Romans one twenty nine. they are full of envy, murder, strife. Same word for quarreling, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Needless to say, this is a common vice found among the wicked. But it has no place among the saints of God. No place among the household of God. It's a fruit of the flesh, as we'll see. It's not a fruit of God's Spirit. This is something we're commanded to put away if we are going to uh, produce and put forth the fruit of the Spirit. Now in verse 12, Paul opens up what is actually the, the essence of this quarreling among the saints. What I mean... That is, this is what I'm saying. Here's what I'm referring to. Just so that you know, when I say quarrel, nobody's unclear. I'm not being vague. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now think with me here. We see in these words, sure enough, the essence of the matter all boils down to fleshly or fleshy, appetites. Each one of you says. Now that right there, we have a problem. Because all of the saints in Corinth were, were thinking of themselves or considering themselves as merely individuals. Almost like everybody had went home and made their own flag and their own banner. Now, I don't think the way he describes it here, it's not as though every single individual had their own particular faction, but that was the idea. That's what leads to factions. Even if there, there are groups, even if there are five in a group, well, the five in that faction became that faction because all five of them said, well, I follow so-and-so. In other words, in Corinth, there was this felt need or this, this, this felt liberty to express themselves according to their individual views rather than unity, rather than a a oneness of mind, which is what he prescribed in verse 10. It got to that point where there was sort of a bubbling pressure where people felt a need to say, well, well, I am of of this one. I I follow this one. To let everybody know what they think, what they believe as, as an individual. And the specific point of the conflict is just that. Each one says... I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. That that phrase in the ESV, I follow, is an interpretive translation. It literally reads, I am of. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. Each person, it feels the need to identify themselves according to their favorite teachers their favorite preacher. In other words, there's a promotion of one's own peculiar views over against or at least distinct from others. It's I, me, mine versus we, us, our. Each one of you, every individual has to declare their own particular position on this issue. It was the essence of social media before everybody even... Before anyone ever even imagined things like Twitter and MySpace and Facebook. Think about it. We call it, we call it social media. But really, how does it work? Everybody gets their own page. Everybody gets their own thread. Everybody gets their own wall. If you're younger, you really missed out on the MySpace days. You could put your own song and your own background when people went to your page, the song. Anyway... It's social, but everybody gets their own, their own soapbox, if you will, and really everybody is, is handed the freedom. Here, express your own individual idea in the marketplace of ideas, and if you pay attention, every expression, every expression for the most part is every individual person saying I am of... Fill in the blank. Now, they're not all theological. It's not all people picking their own teachers and preachers. It's just, I want a place where I can go and let everybody know my opinion. And it's, it's just sort of a bummer that other people get to comment and then we have to interact. That, that's where we get stressed out when we actually have to be social about it. But, but we call it social media because there is this social aspect to the expression. All of the I am ofs are typically meant to set forth the contrast between me and you. When I get up in the morning, I feel like just letting the world know this is what I think over against all of the other I am ofs that I have heard throughout the week, through whatever outlet that that they're coming. I'm learning what everybody else thinks and I need to let everybody know what I think in contradistinction to, to them. This is what they were doing. It was the same thing. And the point of conflict in their case was their various teachers, Paul, Apollo, Cephas, that's Peter, and Christ. Each person was holding up the flag of their preferred teacher, waving the banner of their favorite teacher in order to identify themselves over against other people, but not just other people. It wasn't just like our social media, because this was their brothers and sisters in Christ in their church family. I want to let everybody know how I differ from you all. And everybody is essentially backed into a corner against their brothers and sisters. That was the essence of the quarrel here. It had become their habit to identify oneself by one's favorite teacher over against the views of others. And that would then begin to establish a contrast between yourself and someone else. Because if you say, if they were to say, I am of blank, well, that's, that's distinguishing you from other people. That's, that's effectively saying, and you are not of blank. I follow blank, and what you need to hear me saying is i know that you are not of blank i'm here and you're there this is my opinion that's your opinion and between us there is a great chasm fixed that no man can cross we've we've separated ourselves into these factions and they were doing this again under the names of their 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 favorite teachers and preachers let's let's open up that idea of, the, of these preachers i've said before and i i, I think it's true that it's safe to, to assume the essence of this quarrel, they're disputing is not doctrinal. That is, it's not a matter of, of direct divine revelation because I don't think we would we would be under the impression that Paul and Apollo's, and Peter all came with their own variations of doctrine and teaching that would have been themselves distinct from the teaching of Christ. And the Corinthians were left to themselves to try to figure out who they believe is orthodox over who they believe is heretical. I don't think that's what's happening. I'm I'm under the impression that that Paul and Apollos and Peter preached and and taught the same gospel and the same theology, conveyed the same revelation that Christ himself had taught because they were his preachers. What's the issue? Well, the exact differences are not stated. We don't know what was actually happening here. There are some possibilities. What we know of these men, we could maybe assume Paul was the founding preacher of the church. Paul was with them the earliest. Paul was a a spiritual father to most of them probably. Apollos comes along later and and we know from the book of Acts that Apollos was a very eloquent and competent preacher, probably much more polished and refined than Paul was. In other words, Apollos was probably a better preacher, just as far as being able to listen to him and follow him, than Paul was. Did I say that right? Apollos is better than Paul. You don't you don't read Peter saying some of things that some of the things that Apollos said are hard to understand, but he does say some of the things Paul wrote kind of hard to follow. Kind of hard to understand. Apollos was probably the better preacher. Peter, if we're assuming that Peter had visited there, which there's good inclination to believe that. Remember, Peter was the apostle specifically to the Jews. His primary ministry was in Jerusalem. More than likely when he came, he would have had a preferred constituency amongst Jewish converts. And then you have those who would say, I am of Christ. And because of the way Paul deals with this, most commentators suspect that these were probably the people who were just presenting themselves as more spiritual than all of the others. They they were the, I don't follow men, I only follow Christ party. Even though nobody was ever expected to pick between Christ and, and the gifts of Christ to His church, when they said, I am of Christ, that was probably uh, a... a a high-nosed way of looking down on their brothers and sisters and making these accusations. You can follow your human teachers if you want, but we over here, we are of Christ. But again, none of these men taught contrary doctrine to one another. The differences among these saints boil down to really preferences. One would say, "Well, I like Paul because he was the first one here. He spent so much time. He, he put in all the effort of planting the churches. Uh, the church here, we we've he's he's the one who led me to Christ. I just got used to the way he would present it." And then somebody would say, "Well, yeah, but Apollos, you have to you have to admit, Apollos is a better preacher. I mean, when you listen to him, it's just a lot easier to follow." somebody else would come along and say well but but peter you know he has that tenderness and that that relationship to to us jews that i think is actually ordained of god to to draw a connection between us and him as i am a jew and then others would be in the corner and they would say well y'all can have fun with all your human teachers we'll just get our teaching from christ we we follow christ again it's all preferential All of the distinctions that would have been made would have been according to the appetites of the flesh. And appetites of the flesh can be various. This is where we have to... This could be an entire study in itself. And it is a lifelong study. Hopefully you understand. Your your life's work should be discovering what appetites of the flesh look like in your life and in the lives of others. Because every person can have a thousand of their own appetites and they might not think that they're gratifying the desires of the flesh when they are. Appetites of the flesh can be various. For example, somebody might can say, well, this is just what I'm used to, appetite of the flesh. You just told me the reason you prefer this is because it it comforts your flesh. You're used to it. That's an appetite of the flesh. It doesn't necessarily have to be sinful or taken to a sinful place. Extreme, it's not wrong to get used to something, but that is an appetite of your flesh. What we like to hear is an appetite of the flesh. Remember, Ezekiel prophesied and people loved to listen to Ezekiel. Nobody, nobody obeyed him, nobody paid attention. They loved to listen to him. Teaching or preaching that makes us feel smart... That can be an appetite of the flesh. It makes me feel like I'm receiving good, solid, deep, reformed, orthodox teaching. When he he teaches, it just makes me feel like I'm really finding myself in the the pathway of of the godly down through history, which is not bad, but very often that becomes a a pacifying and a satisfying of our flesh. I like that feeling. Preaching that gives preference to our background or culture or heritage. We like that. Like the Jews would have said, well, I like a man who knows what it's like to be a Jew and, and can cater to the Jews. We could be the same way. I like a preacher that caters to, to southern heritage or, or American culture and things like that. And we prefer that because he makes us feel like we're at home. Not necessarily anything wrong with that, but that can be an appetite of our flesh. Or the type of preaching that just makes us look and feel like we're more spiritual than other people. That can be an appetite of the flesh. It's fleshy, James 4.1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Your passions, unmet lusts, unmet uh, desires. They go unsatisfied and so you're you're amped up or ramped up in your, your desires. When my unsatisfied lusts ramp up my appetites for one thing, and then your unsatisfied lusts ramp up your appetites for something else, and then we have to come together and decide what we're going to do. Well, that's only going to breed quarreling. There's going to be quarreling. There's going to be fighting. That's what James says. Your desire is to have what you want, but my desire is to have what I want. I want what I want. You want what you want. Well, we can't both have the, what we want. And so there's quarreling. And very often it's nobody's desire to move forward wanting the same thing. Most people don't think, well, I just don't want to quarrel. Let's just figure out how we can move together in unity. No, I want what I want. And that breeds the quarrels. That's what was happening here. Now, from this, we can draw out at least two applications just at this point. The first one is this. Many times God's good gifts become an occasion for sin because we look or or treasure the gift more than we do the giver. And they become occasions for sin. God had given them gifts. Can you imagine being a part of a church where the Apostle Paul had preached and planted, then comes Apollos, and then as a, as a visiting itinerant, they would have the Apostle Peter? That's a big deal. They had been given gifts. And again, substantially, there would have been no difference in the theology and doctrine of these men's preaching. Their doctrine was was the same. In other words, the, the substance of revelation was the same. That which was coming from God, revealing God to them through the human preachers was the same. But they were looking past the substance of that doctrine to the way in which it was being presented. The revelation of God, from God was being substituted with the way in which it might come to them. It would be like if we sent the pizza delivery guy back to the store because he pulled in the driveway in a Toyota rather than a Chevrolet. Didn't you order pepperoni pizza? Well, yeah, but the old guy used to come in a Chevrolet. We kind of prefer American-made vehicles around here. But I have your pizza, right? It, is, it does smell good and we are hungry. But you got somebody that drives a Chevrolet or maybe a Ford or something, you know, it doesn't make any sense. That's, that's the next point. But that's kind of the picture. And we should never begin to trade the giver for the gifts. This is what happens when we get bored with the giver himself. It's no longer enough to have God. It's no longer enough to have God's revelation of himself. We have to move beyond that and make sure that the vehicle that God uses is the one of our preferences and we've got to make sure that everybody else prefers that too. When we should be rejoicing that we've received anything at all. Many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. We should be glad that we've received. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven and do not dispute over the color of the ink. But that's typically what happens. God gives good gifts and we say, great. And then we begin to idolize the gift rather than rejoicing that we have the giver. The second thing that I want to point out here is that we need to be thankful that God exposes hidden quarrels. Be thankful that God exposes our hidden quarrels. Whoever Chloe's people were, God used them to bring this issue to light. This providence worked out for their good because the apostle was able to address it. But it's also worked out for our good because we have the record of it for our own learning, for our own instruction. God did this because He works all things together for the good of His people. You see, if left in the dark and unaddressed... Hidden quarrels, oftentimes when they're hidden, we would refer to them as a, a root of bitterness or bitterness. If they're left in the dark and unaddressed, hidden quarrels will take root and spread like gangrene, not only in your own soul, but also throughout the church. God loves His church. And He will often expose these things. These little quarrels. That some of you have in your hearts with others here, those tiny little seeds of, of bitterness that you think no one knows about, God is too good not to bring that to light. He loves us too much to not bring it to light. He's too good to let you hide in the closet with your secret sins, and He will, in His time and providence, bring them to light. For some, He's already doing it. Listen. This is a CBC sermon. It's not a conference sermon. I'm preaching to our, our people here, I'm preaching to you. For some, he's already revealing that you have raging passions in your heart, toward others, through your own words and actions. You think nobody else sees it. You think you're hiding it well. Listen. It's obvious. It's obvious. You've got to quarrel with somebody. You're bitter in your heart. And that bitterness is either going to spread like cancer and destroy the church, or God brings it to light in some other way, or, this would be my advice, you can deal with it personally before it becomes destructive. But listen, God is too good to let it go. He will make it manifest. It's coming. Again, my suggestion would be, take the initiative, make the first step, get it dealt with. This is the occasion of Paul's appeal to unity. There was quarreling among them over their favorite teachers. Point number two, we see the arbitrary nature of this occasion. The arbitrary nature of this occasion. Now, I want to give a definition of arbitrary because sometimes we have a definition and and the, the meaning of the word actually goes beyond the way we typically use it. If I don't give you this definition, then you'll be wondering, why did he use the word arbitrary? based on random choice or personal whim. That's what we typically think of as arbitrary. But negatively, it's defined as unsupported or unjustifiable by sound logic, standards, or judgment. In that sense, synonyms for arbitrary would be unreasonable, unjustifiable, irrational, groundless, foolish, or senseless. I'm saying that the occasion for this appeal, this this quarreling among the saints in Corinth, is arbitrary. It's unreasonable. It's unjustifiable. It's irrational. It's groundless. It's foolish. It's senseless. It doesn't make any sense. That's what he's going to show them here. He shows them in verse 13 using some of the core tenets of the Christian faith. And he asks three simple questions in verse 13 Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? With these three questions, Paul points the saints in Corinth to Jesus Christ. Here's the quarrel, here's what I'm talking about, Christ, boom, quickly, get to Him. And he's forcing them to reckon with some things, the unity of Christ, the singularity of Christ, and the exclusivity of Christ. First, with respect to the unity of Christ, Paul says, Is Christ divided? For literally, that word divided, we we could ask, or he could be saying, Is Christ divided up and apportioned out among you in pieces? Picture the concubine in Judges 19. Divided up limb by limb and, and scattered amongst the people of God. That's the idea here. Cut up in pieces and apportioned out. Paul says, is Christ divided up in this way? Is this how it works with Christ? Now, he could be referring specifically to the church, the body of Christ, using using metaphorical language and simply calling it Christ. In other words, is the body of Christ supposed to be divided up this way? And rather than saying the body of Christ or the church, he just says Christ Christ. Or, maybe this is more likely, he may be specifically addressing that last group that he mentioned. Remember, there were no verse numbers. That last group that he mentioned, the the spiritual folks that claimed they only follow Christ. So in that sense, he would be saying, you extra spiritual folks that claim you follow Christ, you, you make that claim over against those that you consider to be less spiritual than you, less Christian than you, that Christ that you follow, is He a divided up and apportioned out Christ? In other words, He immediately challenges that that claim first. Is He a Christ who only gives some of Himself to certain ones of His people and not to to others? Do you have something that they don't have when they claim that they follow Paul or Peter or Apollos? Are you you saying that in doing that they don't have Christ? That might be the, the angle that He's hitting at. Either way, the question is asked in a way that lets us know, even if it weren't asked this way, we know uh, theologically the answer is no. The answer is no. It's one of those immediate no answers. A resounding no. Now taking that, that second interpretation, one commentator says, quote, ironically, the body of Christ is being torn apart by those who claim to be the followers of Christ and not men. In other words, we might read it like this. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? That Christ you say you follow? That doesn't make any sense. Don't, don't try to, to, to hop on the high horse now. Don't take the high road now. That's, that's sort of the idea. And is it not often true that those who are most spiritual in their own minds and their own mouths are least like Christ in their hearts and lives. And this is very often because their spiritual identity is located in something which is meant to distinguish them from and elevate them over their brothers and sisters rather than in Christ before whom we are all nothings in need of everything. you get before that Christ, there's no elevating of, of anybody. No heads are lifted above anybody else's head. But again, Paul's question is clearly to be answered in the negative. No, Christ is not divided up. It is not as though some people get bigger chunks of Christ than others. Another commentator says, Christ is coterminous with and belongs to all who belong to Him. God is one and Christ is one. There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Later on in chapter 12, he will say, For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. How many Christs are there? There's only one. Christ is not divided. The unity of Christ. Next he points out, going a little bit further, the the singularity of Christ as their Redeemer. Was Paul crucified for you? Now, he could have said Apollos, he could have said Peter, and he could have said Paul. I think he's, he takes this angle because he doesn't want to sound like he's trying to cast shade on those others, so he puts himself in the, in the, the judgment seat. Was Paul crucified for you? Those who are identifying themselves by certain mortal teachers, were those men crucified for you? Are, the, are they your redeemer? Again, the answer is clearly no. Only Christ was crucified for them. Jesus Christ is singular in His function as the Redeemer of the saints. He tread the winepress alone. He alone is God the Son in human flesh. He alone is holy and blameless and undefiled. He alone is the spotless Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world by His death. John didn't say, Behold, a Lamb of God the Lamb of God this is the one there's only one there's only one Redeemer no one else Paul couldn't have done it Peter couldn't have done it Apollos couldn't have done it all of these men were merely vessels in the service of God to point men to the only one who can act as their Redeemer the only one who was crucified for sinners Peter and Paul and Apollos they just proclaimed Christ Moses and Isaiah and John, they just proclaim Christ. Down through the centuries, pick any one man you want to. Any one man that we would say has been useful or valuable or blessed as a preacher in the church. Pick anyone you want to or lump them all together if you'd like. And we must say that they are only valuable in as much as they stand in the gauntlet of godly men thrusting people to Christ, pointing men to Christ. That's all that a preacher is. That's all that he exists to do. Because Christ is the only Redeemer. Christ is the only one who has ever bled for sinners. Another commentator says the Corinthians had lamentably failed to understand the position of their evangelists and the substance of the gospel itself. See, when you or or I begin to group ourselves according to specific nuances or peculiarities of our favorite preachers and teachers, rather than grouping ourselves more and more tightly around the person and work of Jesus Christ, we are showing we don't even understand what those teachers were given for. We don't even understand what preaching is. And we really don't understand the gospel itself because the gospel itself is meant to bring people to God through Christ, not human preachers, not human teachers. So he points them to the singularity of Christ as their Redeemer. And then with the third question, he addresses the exclusivity of Christ as Lord. Were you baptized in the name or into the name of Paul? Remember, baptism is a one... Part of baptism, one function of baptism is a public declaration of one's entrance into spiritual fellowship and lifelong allegiance to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So to submit to the ordinance of baptism, young people, you children who think that someday you'd like to be baptized, what what is happening is you are making a public declaration, a public profession That Jesus Christ is your Lord, and you're, you're saying to the world, I commit to giving myself completely and wholly to Him as my Lord. All of my allegiance belongs to Him. Paul says, Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Was there a point where you professed your undying allegiance to Paul? The answer again is no, that never happened. They were baptized into the name of Christ because Christ alone is exclusive in His role as Lord of His people. Remember one of the texts that we read about unity was from Ephesians 4. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. These things draw us together. One. So with these three questions, Paul's doing two things. Again, he's exposing their quarrel as arbitrary, as as unjustifiable, as as foolish, as senseless, irrational. There's no ground for this, this quarrel whatsoever. It doesn't make any sense. Neither Paul, nor Apollos, nor Peter were their Savior. And those who claimed to be of Christ were acting contrary to the one Savior that they claimed. He's he's squashing it from, from the very beginning. None of this makes any sense. It has to stop. But secondly, he's also nudging them further in the direction of the source and substance of their salvation, which is Christ alone. The way to heal the errors in Corinth was to recalibrate them to their identity as in Christ, not of Paul of Peter, of Apollos. No, in Christ. We're in union with a person. And to make anything else the ground of our salvation or the bedrock of what we are as Christians is to bring an idol into the temple of God and set it up. It is Antichrist. So Paul shows them how this quarrel was arbitrary. Then thirdly, we see Paul's ministry set forth as the opposite of arbitrary in verses 14 to 17. Here he speaks of his own ministry among them and shows how it was anything but arbitrary. He had a very intentional, justified, purposeful way of working. And it was the opposite of divisive or self-promoting. Remember when we looked at verse 1. Paul said he was called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And we pointed out that to be an apostle beyond just the etymology of the word apostle it doesn't just mean somebody who delivers a message but an apostle of Christ was one who embodied the ministry of Christ in word and deed before men and this would include self-denial and suffering and affliction for the sake of the gospel that's chapter 4 we'll get there so paul's not above reducing himself in the eyes of others this is actually what he preferred he he knows this is my lot When John said, he must increase, I must decrease, that was Paul's thinking. I've got to come low. That was a part of being an apostle. He was shown early, remember. He was shown the things he must suffer. That was a part of his call. So then he goes into describing his ministry and he's sort of beginning to introduce this idea. Negatively, verses 14 to 16, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Here Paul is thankful for what he did not do. I thank God, and he's probably thinking, has this instance in mind. He's saying, well, I thank God that I didn't do any more than I did, the way you were acting. And he speaks of baptism almost as a small thing in comparison to his particular function as an apostle. Not that it is a small thing, but it's very... When you read it, you think, I would love to hear him go further. I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. I get it. There's some of you here that I've said, I forgot that I baptized you one time. So so I kind of get it. But it's almost like he belittles the, the idea of baptism because... His ministry was was so much more. Positively, he says in verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize. Or, for, I thank God, for, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul considered himself a steward of Christ. Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. My, what he's saying is my whole ministry is merely doing what I was sent to do. I'm a steward. We'll see that later. I'm a, He's saying, I'm a steward on mission from my Lord. I'm glad that I didn't baptize because He didn't send me to baptize. Well, what did He send you to do? Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Paul knew that he was sent to preach the gospel. His ministry was never about accumulating followers for himself. And he's glad that he didn't baptize many in Corinth for this very purpose. He would have despised the idea that people were flaunting their, their you know, I was baptized by Paul sticker on their lapel. That would have nauseated him. It's like, I'm, he says, I'm glad I didn't baptize because of the way that you are acting now. I was sent to preach the gospel. And that was his focus. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to save sinners. And when the gospel is rightly preached, it always points away from all men, even your own self. And Paul's not ashamed to go even lower because not only did he focus on preaching the gospel and not baptism, but even in his preaching, he refused to preach with carnal worldly wisdom. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. Or literally, wisdom of words, or cleverness of speaking. Now, in the Greco-Roman culture, remember, there was a high value placed on rhetoric for the sake of rhetoric. It was a way to actually puff men up. It It was tantamount to our... Obsession with sports. It was an entertaining thing that men would use to puff themselves up before their fellow men. A speaker, if he was he was very eloquent, he was the best. Even if what he was saying wasn't true, it didn't, didn't matter the truth of the thing. It was, it was the way that it was being presented. And then the, the hearers... Would have been considered a higher class of people just because they could follow the argument or understand, whereas the uneducated, well, you, you, you can't understand this. You stay home and we'll we'll go listen to our speakers. The words of eloquent wisdom are explained by one commentator as the sophisticated and cultured speech of those of high status. And so Paul is attacking rhetoric as a value system, not rhetoric per se. If you're speaking, you're talking, and you're conveying information, you're trying to reason, argue, you're using rhetoric. That's rhetoric. They had made that into a value system. Here's how we decide who is high class, who is low class. Here here are the the, the people who everybody wants to be, and here are the uneducated nobodies. They, They built that around this idea of eloquent speech. And Paul says... I was sent by Jesus Christ to preach the gospel and not that way. Not in any way that would exalt or elevate any man, preacher or hearer. He says, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And here's his reason. It all all funnels down to this. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. There is power in the cross. That is the death of Christ. And there is power in the preaching of the cross when attended with the, and accompanied by the Holy Spirit. And the power is completely supernatural. Completely supernatural. As Paul says in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel comes attended with power from God because the gospel reveals an alien righteousness from God that can only be obtained by faith. And so, what Paul's saying is that the gospel that he preached was a message that purposefully reduced all men to nothing. It was intentional. It was aimed that way. That was the goal. It has to be that way so that the power of God can be displayed when sinners are converted through the declaration or the preaching of Christ crucified. The message of the cross is not irrational or nonsensical It actually makes a lot of sense. It's actually perfect, perfectly rational. The problem is we're sinners. We are irrational. We are nonsensical. The message of the cross is rational, but it pushes against the tendencies of our fallen nature because we want something that puffs us up, that makes us feel really good. The gospel doesn't do that. And so it requires God to supernaturally open the eyes of the blind in order to receive it. so Paul rejected eloquent words of wisdom so that no one could say well you know they only believe that message because they got that guy down there that you know he speaks the way he's, he's one of the new up and coming rhetoricians in in Corinth you know and and you, you know when he speaks his lips just drip with honey and and people fawn over him they would they would really believe anything that he said just to just to say that they were of that group and they, that they could understand and he says I didn't preach that way so that nobody could say that. Paul preached the simple message of Jesus Christ in the place crucified in the place of sinners. And then he commanded men to renounce their own righteousness and lay themselves on Christ for salvation. Imagining walking into a metropolis like this where everybody's clamoring to see who can be the latest and the greatest and the highest and the, the most wealthy and to... to uh, Put themselves over all of their fellow citizens and marching in and declaring, All of you are sinners. None of you have anything. Your best deeds are useless. God commands you to renounce all of your righteousness and throw yourself at the mercy of His Son. Who's His Son? A crucified carpenter from Nazareth. The Romans put Him on a cross and slaughtered Him in front of everybody. How is He going to save us? Oh, three days later He rose from the dead. And He did all that for your sins so that you can be reconciled to God. Anybody who comes to faith in this place, in any place, with that proclamation, the only explanation is Almighty God attended it with supernatural power and opened their eyes to act in a way completely contrary to their natural tendency. All of a sudden, we who want to elevate ourselves higher and higher and higher, men begin to fall on their faces and they say, Have mercy on me, a sinner. Only God can do that. Paul did this on purpose. This was his commission. The power behind the cross and the preaching of the cross is God's own power. Paul's ministry was not arbitrary. It was intentional. It was focused. It was aimed. I almost wonder if Paul could have probably been a little bit better than he was. He probably could have done a little bit better. But he says, I'm not doing that. I know how to do it. When we read his writings, he's not an idiot. He's not a fool. He's a very smart man. But he says, I'm not doing that. I renounce all of that. So that when a sinner comes to Christ, everybody has to say, through that... That sermon, that word, that message, your, your life has changed. Everything is changing now. And the power is ascribed to God. Now Paul's going to go on and he's going to open up this further. Through the end of the chapter he, he expounds upon this, the power of the proclamation of Christ crucified. Then in chapter 2 he goes into this, this, his philosophy of ministry over, against, and, and, and laid beside human wisdom and how the Spirit must give understanding. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he returns to the quarrel and urges them to unity, reminds them of what the, the apostles were supposed to be in their eyes, how they were supposed to receive their human teachers. But they had divided into factions. Their factions were completely unjustified for an assembly of Christians. Because as Paul explains, human preachers are merely instruments in the hands of Almighty God tasked with preaching Christ crucified for sinners. It doesn't make any sense that anybody would glory in a preacher. It is Christ and Christ alone who gets our allegiance. Our only banner is Christ crucified for sinners. Every human preacher should be able to summarize his whole ministry in Paul's words to Timothy. Jesus Christ is the only one who can save a sinner. I'm just another one of those sinners. Anybody who stands here is just another one of those sinners. I exist to show to all of you here that God can have mercy on a sinner. For anybody who says, well, I would come, but I'm not sure, I think that I have probably out-sinned the mercy of Christ. You think that? Look at me. With fullness of sincerity, I can say, if, if a person could out sin the mercy of Christ, I did it before you all got here. I would have done it again Yesterday and the day before. But then I woke up yesterday, and I woke up this morning, and guess what? His mercies were new in the box, as if I had not used any of them, as if I hadn't even touched His mercies. Brand new. That's why God uses human preachers. That's the point, to look to the one who had mercy on this one. As we break the bread of the table, we are not only seeing Many have pointed out that in, in, the, in the sacraments we, we get a visible picture of the written word. But we also should be hearing what Christ said this means. We should hear it. Christ said when the bread was broken, we, we hear Christ saying, This is my body for you. He says that every time, weekly. My body For you, my body for you, my body for you. There's grace here. He doesn't say, I'll give my body and it'll work a little ways, but then you're going to have to catch up and start toeing the line. No, every week we're reminded it's His body for us. His body slain for us and for our sins. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11... Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. There is a warning. Don't come to the Lord's table thinking because I ate a piece of bread and drank a cup of juice and or wine I'm right with God my sins are taken care of no there there are countless souls in hell who took the Lord's Supper every Sunday but they did not discern they did not look past the elements to the body of Christ given for them So consider Christ crucified in your place. His blood shed for us as the elements are passed. And then we'll come to the table together.